0: We're pretty sure Jose Altuve will play second base for Houston this season, but the other teams in the American League West have lots of keystone options. I'll talk about that and more with Player Watch News Analysts Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy, next on Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. (laughs) And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt.
0: And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 21st. It's show number six of the 2020 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday news and comment edition for you. We'll have our League Watch Player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including 2019 breakouts by Tommy Edmund and Zach Gallen, And Freddie Freeman's career year, among other things, can they repeat? And Ray Murphy will have news from the American League including those second-base situations in Seattle, Oakland, Texas, and Los Angeles, as well as the outfield situations in Boston and Cleveland. We'll also have some commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky is back, and he's looking at Chicago White Sox infielder Nick Madrigal. And in the three-minute warning, I'll be talking about having conviction in our draft rankings. It's another big Friday news and comment edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? we got to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday news and comment edition, our player news reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League Report. And leading off, it's the National League and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio.
2: Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here.
0: I'd like to lead off this morning, there hasn't been a lot of news news for us to talk about uh, very slow as uh, spring training starts to gather some momentum I imagine we'll see more actual news over the next couple of weeks as positions get decided and rotation slots get decided and that kind of thing, but there has been a lot of interesting content at Baseball HQ that I'd like to talk with you about and I'd like to lead off with a discussion of one of last year's breakouts, St. Louis multi-position player Tommy Edmond had a great year, but Coming somewhat out of nowhere, Nick, 11 homers, 15 stolen bases, and 59 runs scored, all in just 326 at-bats with an 850 OPS. This was an outstanding half-year. Facts and Flukes analyst Greg Pyron looked at the half-year of Tommy Edmonds' 2019 season. Was it a fact or a fluke?
2: Yeah, you have to wonder, can he can he do this again? I mean, he, he entered the season outside the top 15 prospects in the Cardinals organization, so that's way down the depth chart. Uh, but a fast start at Memphis in the PCL uh, included a 305 batting average, seven home runs, nine stolen bases in 49 games, and then came up to the majors in June. Uh, and actually kind of flew under people's radar for a long time, I think, in, in, in a lot of leagues. But uh, ended up, as you said, batting 304, 11 homers, 15 stolen bases. Um, and, and what really sparked his emergence, the, there was increased power in his profile last year, which he had not shown before uh track record of abysmal power index in the minors. Uh, surprising to see him show near average power in Major League Baseball. Uh, and the, the expected home run per fly mostly supports those get power gains. It'll be interesting to see how much of that really sticks. Uh, Stat cast measured sprint speed ranked in the 97th percentile. Uh, very efficient on the base path, so he could easily make a run at 20-plus stolen bases. Uh, contact rate, elite wheels, a knack for hitting the line drives. Gives him a very solid BA floor. Uh, X batting average since uh, hits at some regression, his XBA was only 276, so maybe expecting him to hit over 300 is a bit of a reach. Certainly a pleasant surprise last year, and played a vital role down the stretch, batting 350 with six homers and six stolen bases in September. His ability to play several positions provides a lot of avenues to playing time, so even if he's not a regular in the sense of being in one position all the time, he figures to be in the lineup almost every day, um, can provide... Batting average, stolen bases, wouldn't count on all that newfound power sticking around. Uh, Currently, ADP of 136, uh, probably not a lot of profit potential at that spot. So I wouldn't reach for him, but at 136 could still be okay in terms of uh, where he winds up on your your roster, although probably not going to, to produce a lot more than that. And a fair amount of risk.
0: Well, that's the thing. There's a fair amount of risk. But at the same time, one of the things we talk about here at Baseball HQ Radio and at the site is... You have to learn to trust the organization sometimes, and St Louis is a good organization, and they 're not going to make uh, a huge mistake with uh, Tommy Edmund as far as how they deal with him where they play him, how often they play him, and those kinds of things because they they know what they 're doing and uh, and you have to give him a little bit of an extra bump if you think if he if he comes out and they and they seem to be playing Tommy Edmond regularly, uh, especially at multiple positions, then I think you have to trust that a little bit. The fact that he has multi-position eligibility and will continue to have multi-position eligibility can't be uh, understated. It's a tremendous value in the modern game of fantasy baseball to be able to take a guy like that and move him around internally on your roster because it gives you so much more flexibility in the event of an injury elsewhere that you can slide Tommy Edmond over from where he is to where he needs to be and grab the best available player from your free agent pool rather than having to focus in on, say, grabbing a second baseman or grabbing an outfit or whatever the case might be so that's a plus two
2: yeah that that's a really good point patrick it really is that the multi-position eligibility is very very valuable
0: i'm looking at the baseball H group projection and we're giving him a full season's worth of at bats which is pretty good but the home runs and stolen bases just over 20 apiece and i think that the that the Upside here is in the stolen base side rather than in the home run side, as you said. I wouldn't be surprised to see it be more like a 15 homer, 30 stolen base year rather than a 2020 20 type of year, because I'm I'm not convinced that the power is for real.
2: Yeah, I think you may be right, but certainly a 1530 kind of season in today's game and today's fantasy game is cert- is something that's extremely valuable. Maybe even better than 2020.
0: And don't overlook the power and importance of runs scored. It's kind of the red-headed stepchild of fantasy baseball planning. But 59 runs scored in 320 at-bats last year. If he gets roughly double that amount of at-bats, you're looking at a guy who's going to be way over 100 runs scored, and that's a huge benefit as well. Uh, another great season last year from a more expected source. First baseman Freddie Freeman of Atlanta set career highs in his home runs with th- 38 121 RBIs, and 113 runs scored in 2019. He was a $30 player for the second straight year. Freddie Freeman is establishing himself as one of the guys you can really count on in fantasy baseball. Uh, Brandon Cruz covered his season last year for Facts and Flukes. And the question is, can Freeman repeat that career year or maybe even get a little better?
2: Yeah, what, what uh, Brandon asked is, can this, did his skills back that career up? And the answer is, they did. And there's reason to think, yeah, he could get a little bit better. Uh, he demonstrated terrific overall skill consistency over the last three seasons. Uh, steady plate discipline plus power skills. Uh, expected batting average between 290 and 300. So that gives reason for confidence that he can maintain that kind of performance. Upside potential is in home runs. Uh, both uh, expected home runs and expected home run per fly have suggested for five years that there's even more untapped power here. And in fact, he was on pace for a 40 home run season until bone spurs in his right elbow flared up in September. So, a two home runs in a game on September 1st, uh, and then after that, hit just 235 with no homers and a 625 OPS during the last 81 plate appearances. And as we said, that was that was bone spurs, not not any kind of another other problem. Uh, that dragged down his second half stats and skills a bit. Uh, so if you look at the first half stats, not only was on the pace for 40 plus homers, but the increased power helped support an even higher batting average. Only red flag in 2019 skills came against left-handed pitching, where his numbers were the weakest they've been since 2015. 255 batting average, 750 OPS, 6% walk rate, 73% contact rate, 0.25i, 100 power index. But as with his overall numbers, there's been a drop off between, it was a drop off between first and second halves. 293 batting average, 917 OPS, 76% contact rate, 137 power index in the first half, 215, 575 OPS, 70% contact, 58 power index in the second half. And again, the performance of the left-handing pitches really tanked in those last 81 at bats. Seemed to be expected affected by the bone spurs, went only four for 16, with no extra base hits and a 56% contact rate. So the bone spurs were, were definitely an issue there. He went, underwent arthroscopic surgery in mid-October to clean up the bone spurs in the elbow, expected to be ready for spring training. All indications are that he should be good for another elite performance, and a shot at his third straight $30 season, with the uh, possible upside of a new career high in homers to go along with that.
0: Yeah, Freddie Freeman's going solidly in the second round in NFBC drafts. Uh, he's gone as high as ninth overall, as low as 25th, so that's a pretty wide range. I'm going to expect that it's mostly going to be around the sixteen, seventeen spot, and I think that there's good reason to have him there, and I might even jump him over a few of the guys who are ahead of him, uh, like Fernando Tatis Jr., where there's a question about the, uh, uh, you know. The youth aspect of things, plus a bit of injury history. Alex Bregman is around that same area, and of course we know what's going on there. Uh, Jose Ramirez has been drafted in that same kind of general area. So uh, Freddie Freeman has the advantage of being as close to a lock to return this kind of value as you can get. And there's a school of thought, Nick, that says when you're spending your big money in auctions or spending your early draft picks, the key thing is don't Gamble. You got to get the production you need out of those spots because otherwise you're in real trouble later on. And if that's how your philosophy is going to go, and I came down to my spot at uh, draft pick 17, and I said, "Oh, I can take Fernando Tatis Jr. or Freddie Freeman. I think I'm leaning Freddie Freeman."
2: Yeah, I think so too. I mean, you you at, at that spot in the draft, if there's a lock or a near lock, you go for the lock and and take your upside a little bit further down if you can shore up your 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 roster with some guys that you can really count on in the first two or three rounds, that helps a whole lot.
0: One of the most important columns at BaseballHQ.com, and the one I check really, really regularly, is the market pulse. We have analysts who look at disparities between the ADPs, as we've been discussing, and the HQ rankings. They're trying to find where are the gaps whether the uh, market is undervaluing or overvaluing certain players. Matt Cedarholm just did the Market Pulse piece covering first baseman, and one of the real puzzlers that Matt noticed had to do with the Arizona first baseman Christian Walker. He's ranked as the 400th best player by HQ's valuation measures, but he's being drafted around pick 200. That's the 14th round and seems to be way out of step with what the legitimate value is of Christian Walker. Why does the draft market feel so much more bullish than our analysts about Christian Walker?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, if you look at that carefully and what, what uh, he suggests is that the disagreement between baseball HQ and the market over Christian Walker is about playing time. We have him with 372 at bats currently from our analysts, some skepticism about his ability to sustain his uh, skill gains from last season. Uh, we do think he is what we saw last year an above average power enough contact ability to make it work. Uh, but at 29s, you're not going to expect him to grow very much. His upside is something like a 250 batting average, 30 home runs. That's not terrible, but it's not worth a reach. Uh, and he comes with more downside than some guys just above him in the first base rankings, like for Encarnacion, who's going only about 20 spots higher, I think, than uh, uh, than, than Walker. So, I, 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 I think going for Christian Walker at ADP 200 is definitely a reach.
0: On the other hand, when I look at the situation in Arizona, I just don't see where the playing time threat is coming from. Do you know what I mean, Nick? Uh, I see uh, Kron in there behind Walker, and then I look at the rest of the roster, and I'm just not seeing anybody jumping out at me that says, here's the guy that's going to step in if there's any kind of slippage from Christian Walker. It just seems like Arizona doesn't have a lot of opportunity to mess around um, unless you consider the possibility of Lamb crossing the diamond or Escobar crossing the diamond, something like that. Which it also Seems like they would be really forcing the issue if they did that.
2: Yeah, I agree with you. There isn't a whole lot of, of apparent depth at first base at this point in, in Arizona, so that seems to solidify some of the at bats for Christian Walker. But on the other hand, if they are, uh, if they as, are as they hope to be uh, in a pennant race, as it comes down to things at the end, uh, and Walker is not not performing where they expect him to be, you know, that's the kind of thing he could wind up with three hundred seventy-two at bats instead of five hundred.
0: And I guess there's a possibility they could try to trade in for somebody uh, more productive if he wasn't getting the job done and they were being competitive in the division or more likely in the wild card. I don't see them catching the Dodgers for sure. Uh, uh, Baseball HQ's projection, you said 372 at bats. We're looking for 20 home runs, uh, maybe 50 or so runs in RBIs and a BA under 250. So if you're playing in a batting average league as opposed to an on-base league, uh, something to think about. Let's stay in Arizona, Nick. One of this year's most high Hyped pitchers has been the Diamondbacks right-hander Zach Gallen, uh, really climbing the ADP charts. I've been noticing that there's a lot of, you know, so many columns. It's ironic, isn't it, Nick? So many columns saying Zach Gallen's a sleeper that he stopped being a sleeper altogether. Uh, Speculator columnist Ryan Bloomfield included Zach Gallen in a piece that he ominously titled "Avoiding This Year's Nick Pavetta," and that's, of course, a reference to the Phillies can't miss pitcher last season, who missed in a big way. What are Ryan's concerns with Zach Gallon that cause him to at least consider Gallen as a potential bust like Nick Pavetta?
2: Yeah, the the, the industry-wide love for Zach Gallen began in earnest at first pitch Arizona last October, and it hasn't stopped. Uh, and the hype makes sense. Gallon has uh, elite sub indicators, swinging strike rate, first pitch strike rate, thanks to a very nasty changeup, twenty-two percent swinging strike rate, sixty-five percent ball r- ground ball rate on his on his changeup, an effective curveball cutter. Uh, but let's play a bit of devil's advocate here, as he says in true speculator fashion. He had a very fortunate strand rate, an 81% strand rate, and that drove a wedge between his his earned run average and his expected earned run average. 2.81 ERA, 4.09 expected ERA, and kind of shaky control, 4.1 control, uh, subpar ground ball rate, 39%. And the most important thing to remember about Zach Gallant at this point he's only thrown 80 career innings at the major league level. So he could well break out and blow away his draft price. But at a at an ADP of 131, a guy who's thrown only 80 major league innings, eh, that's getting a bit pricey for me.
0: And again, when you look at the uh, draft uh, ADP position charts – there are There are other options in that area. I won't go through who they are, but there's plenty of pitchers going in that eighth ninth round area and it, again, it becomes a question of how confident are you that gallon can? repeat in you know 160 innings what he did in 80 innings last year and especially the thing that worries me you mentioned 4.1 walks per nine is a lot of walks and uh, nowadays you want a guy who's going to get the ball on the ground and he's not really doing that either Uh, I think Zach Allen could be a terrific pitcher but again it's all about the risk profile do you want to take a chance on that when you could get something a little safer at the price and I know people say you've got to look for your big upside, as you, as we mentioned earlier when we were talking about uh, Freddie Freeman. You have to, like, try to minimize risk at the top of the draft and then grab for your profit down the draft. And maybe Zach Gallon is a better profit potential in the sort of eighth, ninth round than some of the other guys who are more solidly established at that level. Uh, that would be a decision you have to make. Uh, Average ADP, 129 since January 15th, I just checked. That's ninth round, so you're looking at Lance Lynn is in that area, Madison Bumgarner's in that area, and I don't think Lance Lynn or Madison Bumgarner is going to be a hugely profitable pitcher at that stage. But on the other hand, I'm also a little more confident that neither of them is going to be the kind of real disaster that a young pitcher with only eight innings could be. Uh, Finally, Nick, uh, Baseball HQ's Keeper Leagues column, is written by former Major League General Manager Brad Coleman. Really nice guy and really smart guy. And he's been going through both leagues looking for what he calls cornerstone keepers, building blocks keepers, and support pieces, with cornerstones being the top level, of course. And in his coverage of National League starting pitchers, one of the names Brad mentioned as a cornerstone keeper was the Dodgers right-hander Dustin May. Why is Brad so enthusiastic about Dustin May?
2: Let me before I before I respond directly. Let me pick up on something you said, former former general manager. This guy sees things in players that the rest of us miss because of the position and the point of view that he's coming from. And I find that rare, very, very important. And I pay attention a lot to what Brad is saying because of that uh, of that uh, that perspective. Um, Dustin May, best pitching prospect in a loaded Dodgers system. He says, uh, strike thrower, skilled at inducing ground balls. Sounds pretty good to me. Also showing the ability to miss bats at a fine clip with a mid-90s uh, mid-nineties heat. Add it all up in May makes for an excellent keeper league asset. Still only 22. Uh, best of all, he's already made it to the big leagues, finishing 2019 with four starts and 10 more appearances out of the pin. The only real hurdle remaining for, for May at this point is navigating the Dodgers' tendency to aggressively manage the workloads of all their starters, especially those of the peach fuzz variety. Um, The bad news is that May could be shuffled between the rotation of the bullpen or even back to AAA for a stretch. Uh, The good news is that he should inevitably get some starting pitcher run for the same reason, regardless of the rotation depth around him. He's an excellent keeper league asset, uh, just about ready to blossom. uh, Someone certainly to look at uh, if you're in a keeper league.
0: And really, he's kind of someone to look at if you're not in a keeper league, even in a single-year league. He's going at ADP pick 239, which is kind of double what the uh, what the position is for Zach Gallen. And in a lot of ways, they're very similar. And we mentioned that Zach Gallen has only 80 innings in the big leagues, and that's a cautionary note. Uh, well, Dustin May only has 50, and and that's a that's something that a lot of people are t- seeming to discount Dustin May's ability. And you've got to like. Being on the Dodgers, you mentioned that there's a problem with the way they dingle around with playing time, but at the same time, they're a real smart organization and they know how to manage their pitching apparently. So, I don't know. I, you know, I I think I'd almost rather have Dustin May at two thirty nine than throw a, a a pick sort of eight rounds earlier to get Zach Gallon.
2: Yeah, I think I would in a one year league. I think it definitely would do that, and maybe even in a keeper league draft at that point. Uh, something you certainly keep in mind. Uh, Dustin May is two years younger than Zach Gallon, and that certainly makes a difference as well.
0: It certainly does. And I think in a keeper league, I like both these guys in a keeper league, but I think Dustin May is the kind of guy you can really literally build a, a long-term pitching staff around in dynasty or keepers. Uh, interestingly, Nick, I noticed something that Brad talks about, a building block starter, which is one notch below the, the cornerstone, someone we talked about earlier, which was Zach Gallin. Uh Brad described Zach Gallon as a solid growth stock. So here we have two different opinions on one website. Baseball HQ's Speculator columnist Ryan Bloomfield says could be the next Nick Pavetta. And uh, Brad Coleman says that uh, Z- uh, Zach Allen could be a solid growth stock and a kind of a building block for a future fantasy rotation in keepers. Why the difference and what should readers and listeners make of the difference between two experts on this same pitcher?
2: Well, you know, I think several things to make of the difference, and I, and I love your pointing that out. Um First of all, Baseball HQ doesn't tell its writers what to write. These are guys with uh with great backgrounds, experts in their in their fields, and they may disagree once in a while. So that's one thing to keep in mind and they're allowed to disagree once in a while or more than once in a while if they need to. So what we do is present the evidence and let readers take their draw their own conclusion. Uh and uh, you know, that's 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 what a good Uh, That's what a good teacher does. That's what a good site does. It gives you the evidence and lets you decide from that evidence uh, what you think the conclusion should be. Now, let me point out that there may not be any real difference between these two points of view. Uh, uh, Coleman is talking about a keeper league, uh, and we're talking about in the Speculator column about this year. So, you know, those are two different kettles of fish, and and, uh, definitely keep that difference in mind as you take a look at it. Certainly, Zach Gallon is going to continue getting all kinds of attention as we go through draft season. And in fact, he shows up in Brian Slack's Playing Time Tomorrow column, uh, on the 21st of February. Uh, and, you know, Zach guy uh, Brian, Brian says Zach Gallon's hype train has been gathering steam in fantasy circles all off season. Uh, a 125 ADP since January 1st. Uh, and gives us all those stats that we've talked about. And he agrees that no doubt Gallon benefited from a fortunate uh, hit rate, uh, strand rate, 29% hit rate, 81% strand rate combination. So on the lucky side a little, but plenty of intrigue because, as Brian points out, one of only five major league pitchers with a greater than 15% swinging strike rate on three different pitches. 21.7% on his changeup, 15.6% on his cutter, 154 percent on his curveball. That's certainly something to keep in mind as you look at Zach Gallant.
0: Well, I think that's all very well said. And and personally, if I look at a website where they're very uh, strong and they say, you know, you should draft Zach Gallant in this spot because he will be accomplishing this, that, or the other thing, I think that's the kind of place you want to be leery of following because – this is not a certain business. We cannot say with any kind of certainty anything. Uh, last year, everybody said, well, it's obvious and certain that Mike Trout's going to be the best player overall in the, for the year. And he wasn't. I mean, f- you know, fate intervenes, facts intervene. And it turns out that Christian Yelich was the best player. And I, I don't remember very many people saying, Christian Yelich will be the best player. I can remember good, solid websites like Baseball HQ saying, Christian Yelich has the potential to be a very top-level player, and we all knew that, but any subscriber or reader or listener who grabbed Christian Yelich ahead of Mike Trout was really taking a gamble based on what they thought the situation was, especially regarding stolen bases and injury history and that kind of stuff. And that's what it should be. These websites and podcasts like ours, we're not trying to tell the listeners and the readers what to do. We're saying, here's some things you need to consider while you're making your own decisions. And that's what makes playing this game fun. If if all the websites were that accurate and all the players were doing, the fantasy owners out there were doing, was just doing what I say or what you say or what uh, Brad Coleman says, are you really even playing the game at that point if you're just doing whatever somebody else tells you to do?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a one of the things that I love about the game that you love about the game is we've got a lot of strong evidence and statistics here but we've still got to play the game, and all that evidence may not may not pan out, and you've got to make decisions throughout the season as you move along based upon what you're seeing. Uh, and, and that's what I love is those decisions that you've got to make uh, from week to week as the season progresses.
0: Well, one last question I have for you, Nick, and uh, then we'll wrap it up. But I just got my draft slot for the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational. We do the Kentucky Derby seating system, and I got uh, the second overall pick And so I'm wondering, I've been reading a lot and thinking a lot about the possibility of going with a pitcher in that spot, which would be very unusual or unorthodox, but especially with Luis Severino, we got the news just the other day that he's going to start the year on the DL, he's having forearm issues, which is usually a precursor or often a precursor to elbow problems. So there's one fewer pitcher in that sort of ace or near ace tier, and if I'm picking second overall, I'm not going to get an ace level pitcher by the time my second round pick comes at pick uh, 29. So do you think it makes sense with the second overall pick to grab my Garrett Cole or my Jacob DeGrom? Ooh. (laughs) A tough, tough question.
2: Uh, You know, it might because those two guys are as close of a lock as you can get. But you've got to remember always that pitchers are far more risky than hitters. Because, uh, the injury factor is, is always there. And even a guy like Cole or DeGrom, who's held up very well, has thrown a lot of innings. And you never know when, uh, when some minor injury is going to come up. And they're paying those guys so much money that they're going to come out of there once they're showing any kind of injury at all. So I always keep that in mind when, when dealing with pitchers. Uh, I try not to prioritize pitchers over hitters, but in your case, in that situation, I just might.
0: All right, Nick, thanks very much for helping me out. Uh, thank you very much for helping us out with the National League News, and we'll talk to you again next week.
2: All right, thank you, Patrick.
0: Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst with baseballhq.com, and he's our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, we'll have news analysis from the American League with Ray Murphy. Right now, though, it's time in the show and I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Facts and Flukes, analyst Eric Florimonte looks at five American Leaguers, including J.D. Martinez, Luke Voigt, and Brandon Workman. In the Speculator, columnist Ryan Bloomfield, a guest here on Baseball HQ Radio in a few weeks, will be looking at how to avoid this year's Nick Pavetta. Talked about that with Harold Nichols a minute ago. And in head-to-head gaming, columnist Dan Marcus looks at the idea of usable weeks. And those are just three articles among dozens. A small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes. Roster news updates in playing time today and forecasting in playing time tomorrow. Buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. Fantasy market analysis by former big league general manager Brad Coleman in the Market Pulse and injury analysis in the Big Hurt. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day. There are daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. When you add it all up, expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues, that's why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. (laughs) And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our news from the American League. And here with the stories and analysis is Baseball HQ columnist and co-general manager, Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back.
1: Happy Friday, Patrick. Always good to catch up.
0: Yeah, it's fun to catch up, and uh, of course it's not so fun where you live in Boston where the uh, much ballyhooed and decried trade of Mookie Betts has taken another turn for the worse from the Red Sox point of view as the key player they got back in the trade, uh, Alex Verdugo from the Dodgers, now seems to be uh, sidelined, at least temporarily, with a back injury of some kind. uh, And uh, Chris Olson covers the Boston Red Sox for playing time today. He also reports that they've signed Kevin Pilar as a free agent. What are the ramifications here? Sounds like a lot's going on.
1: Yeah, even before the Verdugo injury news escalated, the Pilar signing made a lot of sense. Uh, you know, with Benintendi, Bradley, and now Verdugo, they have three left-hand-hitting outfielders, and Bradley, last year, they tended to platoon a lot. So now adding the right-hand to Pilar and having the ability to pull... J.D. Martinez off the DH spot to, le- to left field, they have the ability to sit you know, at least two of the three left-handed bats on a platoon basis if they want to. The Verdugo stress fracture, though, sort of escalates that and escalates the opportunity for Pilar and maybe some others. Uh, it sounds like this injury was known to the Red Sox at the time of the deal, so there's not going to be any further tweaks to the, uh, the deal that took seven months to consummate, but There's still some opportunity for Pilar to be an everyday player uh, while Verdugo's out in April to start the year. And if they need further reinforcements in the outfield, they're going to, you know, they have some options on hand. You know, to me, it's also interesting that we might get some ripples where Jose Peraza, who's projected to play a lot of second base, toes out to the outfield, and maybe that means more playing time. Maybe the actual winners here are uh, Michael Chavez and Mitch Moreland, who rather than sort of sharing first base can cover both first and second with obviously Chavez moving to second, not Moreland. So, you know, there's uh, there are three or four down-the-line effects if Verdugo starts the year on the DL, which does sound increasingly likely.
0: Just by a happenstance, uh, Robert Berger, one of our analysts for Facts and Flukes at BaseballHQ.com, happened to do an analysis on Kevin Pillar. Uh, It had nothing to do with the trade, but he was pointing out that in some drafts, Pillar wasn't even being drafted. uh, And... He seems to think that that's a bad idea, that there's a lot going on here with Kevin Pillar that we should be liking and that he should be considered, especially later in the game when you're looking at a guy who's had double-digit home runs, double-digit stolen bases pretty much uh, the last three out of the last four years, I think. Why are people not interested in Kevin Pillar is my question, and should they be more interested in Boston? He's a pretty helpful stat filler in you know
1: like you said the last three years he's had full-time at bats and has had you know been around the 15 home run stolen base mark in each of those years in a full-time on a full-time basis now presumably Verdugo gets healthy at some point this year and Polar is not actually going to be a full-timer in Boston so we need to prorate those numbers but yes he is something of a box score slash roto category filler with his power and speed blend and he's not a real batting average asset he's going to hit around 250 but that's not that painful to absorb in this day and age and you're getting a decent amount of power and speed about it out of it so sure i agree that he's he was getting underdrafted while he's uh while he was a free agent and even if his start of season role doesn't last for long. He's somebody who I'm going to be quite comfortable having my in my lineup for say the month of April.
0: Yeah, you mentioned the batting average around 250 is 256 252 the last couple of years and that's actually a little under his expected batting average so he's full value for the 250ish batting average. 15 years ago, Ray, neither you or I would have looked at a 250 batting average with any kind of optimism, but in this day and age, as you said, 250 is not uh, the 250 of old. It's actually playable. No, it's not.
1: It's not only is it playable, but then, you, as you said, his last three years' batting averages have been 256, 252, 259, but then you've got to give him a little bit of credit for the San Francisco to Boston Park factor move. He's a right-handed hitter. He's going to have the green monster in front of him right now. Our projection is for a two, 260 batting average, which is perfectly reasonable.
0: Yeah, I'm uh, curious to see if if Kevin Pillar starts moving up the rankings. Uh, Has it ever surprised you, as it has me, Ray, a guy with this kind of wheels, and when he's out in center field, he can really scoot. He's got great speed, and it's never really seemed to translate to stolen bases in the way that we might expect. I've always been waiting for him to repeat that 25 stolen base year from 2015, but uh, ever since then, he hasn't really even come close.
1: No, he hasn't, and like you said, there's – Sort of one element of it is I think there are different kinds of speed, and the you know the the way he tracks balls is a you know and, and jumps fences is a little bit of a different skill than you know sprinting ninety feet at a time, but the other element there of course, is you know stolen base opportunities aren't just about speed they're also about getting on first base and it's probably not a coincidence that that 25 stolen base season came in it with his uh career high and on base percentage which we should note his career high is only 314 and he's been below 300 the last two years so you know more stolen bases would come if he just got to first base more often
0: yeah that's an excellent point as well uh Over in Cleveland, they had a kind of a crowded outfield situation and they dealt with it by adding another outfielder. Domingo Santana signed in Cleveland a $1.5 million contract for a single year. I believe the club has an option for 2021 as well. Boy, there's a lot going on here, speaking of outfields, as we were with Boston. But uh, where does Domingo Santana fit into a very crowded Cleveland outfield situation?
1: You know, he's another one that to me was getting underdrafted for a while, you know, as as a free agent. Uh, If you go back to, you know, he's sort of been on my radar or sort of a, you know, pet favorite of mine since uh, the 2017 season back in Milwaukee, when he actually, you know, had 30 home runs and 15 stolen bases uh, with a very nice 278 batting average. That was a $25 season. Uh, Then the next year, he sort of had some uh swing and miss issues and lost his job and eventually got released and ended up in Seattle last year where he had a a pretty credible rebound he had two fifty three with twenty one home runs and you know four hundred and fifty at bats roughly two roughly two thirds playing time uh so he lands in Cleveland you know with some interesting skills in an outfield that you know muddled doesn't quite cover it sort of as you say there uh I was trying to divinate his playing time, looking at their depth chart here, and it's very interesting. They have, you know, we have um, Oscar Mercado projected at 90% playing time as sort of the mainstay of that outfield, but there are No, no less than six other guys in this outfield. Now, none of whom we project for more than 50% playing time in the outfield. I mean, there's Framil Reyes, who we think will get some cameos in the outfield, but primarily be a DH. He's also a 90% playing time guy. But after that, it's Delano DeShields and Jake Bauer and Bradley Zimmer and Greg Allen and Tyler Nakin and Jordan Luplow, all in the, you know, sort of 25 to 50% playing time range. Santana displaces some of those guys, but, you know, which ones and how much, I I can't really say yet.
0: Looks like a situation that we'll have to keep our eye on, especially during spring training, because it looks like some of these guys... Uh, especially the ones who have options are going to get sent out because there's simply not enough room for them. Even with a 26-man roster, you've got uh, a fairly interesting mix of platoon splits, defensive abilities, all these kind of things that they're going to have to mix and match. And and uh, Terry Francona, to his credit, is pretty good at mixing and matching with that kind of thing. But that doesn't help any of them really from the point of view of a fantasy asset until we find out who's going to get you know 75, 80 percent of the playing time instead of 45, 50.
1: That's exactly right. Once we start, sort of start to figure out in the course of spring training, and as guys get sent out of camp, which say four of those six guys who are who are competing for two spots actually are going to be on the big league roster, then we can probably start to pretty easily interpret the combinations and which ones have the good side of the platoon, the bad side of the platoon, that sort of thing. But right now, it's just a, you know a stack of a stack of puzzle pieces that could be arranged in any number of different ways
0: before his career uh domingo santana has had pretty good platoon splits uh i checked the other day and he was around 830 or so for his ops versus left handers and a creditable 780ish for uh against right handers it seems like he could play a lot of the time the uh, the question is Last year in the second half, he missed a lot of time. He struggled really badly. I think his OPS was under 470. Uh, does that concern you and should it concern drafters who are looking at Domingo Santana as uh, that second half was not too promising?
1: I do like the skills from the longer-term perspective. Like I said, the you know there are some warts in the skill set, particularly on the contact side, but I do like the power and a little bit of speed combo. Uh, and I think the power is pretty well established. He also takes a walk. So even though the contact rate isn't great, the on-base percentage, uh, it does tend to hover in the acceptable range. So I, I agree. I think there's an opportunity for him to sort of emerge as the the second horse next to Mercado in this outfield. But as you said, given new team, new manager, and a bunch of guys fighting for at bats, it's going to be, he's going to need to get off to a good start or run the risk of falling back into that uh, swap of six guys who you don't know who's to, which ones are going to be on the lineup card on any given day.
0: Ray, there's certain things that we just kind of take for granted in our lives. The Swallows go back to Capistrano and, uh, you know, the Bruins are in the playoffs, but it has been the case in Seattle that D Gordon was going to start the year at second base, and our analyst Jock Thompson, who covers the uh, American League West for baseball HQ and playing time tomorrow and playing time today, uh, says D Gordon is probably not going to be a shoe in to be the second baseman when they break camp uh, instead it's going to be uh, shed long what's going on with that analysis?
1: yeah, I think this is a pretty interesting take from Jock in that. You know, D Gordon, obviously a name and a more established player, and even though Seattle's rebuilding, you know, they haven't been able to trade him because, you know, D Gordon doesn't have a lot of trade value, but maybe they want to showcase him a little bit, or they'll at least let him play out his contract and move on to the future. And Jock sort of says, not so fast. You know, Shed Long has a much better chance of being a player on Seattle's next contending team, and... The, the presence of D Gordon, the fact that they're paying D Gordon, shouldn't necessarily inhibit them from taking a long look at Shedlong Shed now. And to be sure, some of that is going to be on Shedlong to demonstrate that he's ready for that kind of opportunity. He had a pretty mad debut last year—that's a uh, technical term—but uh, he also did pick it up in September. He sort of finished the year on a high note in Seattle with uh, you know a pretty productive last. 80 at-bats or whatever it was. Um, Yeah, 80 at-bats hitting 289 with four homers in September. Now, the four homers are a little bit misleading. He doesn't – I wouldn't expect him to have that kind of power, but in fact, there may be some weight and stolen base ability there if he gets the at-bats. But if he can hit 289 to put the ball in play and, you know, uh, hold down second base, it shouldn't – you know, clearing D Gordon shouldn't be that high a bar. So it's very possible that Chet Long – Gets the most at bats of anybody on the Mariners at second base this year, and that's what our updated projections are showing. Jock has along getting sixty five percent of the second base playing time now, and D Gordon in sort of a more utility role where he's getting a little bit of second base, a little bit of outfield, and a smattering of you know shortstop and that kind of thing, and sort of
0: a sort
1: of a tenth man kind of role. And I I, I read Jock's take on this, and I thought it made a lot of sense, so I thought we should cover it here.
0: The other thing about Shed Long that might be a question mark as far as people looking ahead and saying, well, you know, he'll establish himself is he's not exactly, you know, Davey Johnson out there or Joe Morgan with the mitt, and he's had some trouble with that because of like hand issues and so forth. How big of an issue do you think it could be if he doesn't measure up uh, defensively?
1: Seattle knows they're not going anywhere this year, and... I mean, don't get me wrong, their pitching staff needs all the help they can get, but they may need to take an extended look at him to determine what he, whether he can stick at the position defensively. And if they're going to do that, they might as well do that in the majors as opposed to, you know, just sticking him in AAA and having uh, – And evaluating his defense there. So I would imagine that even if the the defense is bad, that he'll have a pretty long rope or it will have to be really, really bad to actually get moved off the job for defensive purposes, because this is really an evaluation year for a lot of guys in Seattle and long, uh, long fibs that bill, but they have the luxury of taking a long look.
0: Jock in his uh, American League West playing time tomorrow article also talked about the second base situation in uh, Oakland, where he said it's even more muddled as far as who's going to be at the Keystone uh, when the spring training ends, because they have so many candidates and all of them have something to recommend themselves, but nobody's obviously the, the guy.
1: Yeah, if we called the Cleveland outfield muddled, then you know, there's uh, there's got to be an even darker word for this second base battle in Oakland. Maybe it's murky, I don't know, but... <laughs> You know, there's a lot of guys and there's only one position as opposed to two corner outfields in Cleveland. And sort of the other wrinkle here is that most of the competitors are out of options. You know, Franklin Barreto is, comes in with the best prospect pedigree and he's out of options and he hasn't shown much in Oakland in brief trials, but his minor league numbers have been quite good. And he theoretically should be the first man up, but you know, I don't know. There's a lot of competition here. There's Tony Kemp, who they just brought in, who uh, also is out of options, who can kind of swing between second base and outfield. He's also a left-handed bat, which is sort of the appeal that they have here in a very righty, heavy Oakland lineup he can make for the big side of a platoon. There's Jorge Mateo, who we, we sort of have to pay attention to just because he can run. This isn't a big running team, but... If Mateo gets even a slice of this job, could be a you know, as asset in a uh, very scarce stolen base category. And then you g- can go on. There's Sheldon Neuse, who's their best third base pro- prospect, who could swing over to the second base. Just to further confuse us, they brought in a Rule 5 pick, uh, Vameel Mashin from the Cubs, who has good play discipline, which we know, going back to the Moneyball days, is a, you know, Billy Bean' favorite skill. He had uh, more walks and strikeouts in Double A last year, so that's uh, you know even if he doesn't do much else, that's a that's an interesting foundation of a skill set. And then there's Chad Pinder, who kind of masquerades out in the outfield, but also t- stole some second base out at bats last year. So there's there's no shortage of six guys to sort out for one po- one position here in Oakland. Uh, and you know, chances are with the twenty six man roster, you know, especially with guys like Camp and Pinder who can be you know who can play elsewhere that there are going to be at least three of them on the opening day roster. So it's probably not going to be a situation where someone gets handed a job. It's probably going to be a a revolving door until somebody claims the job in season.
0: Ray, sometimes when I look at a situation like this, I think – You know, uh, barring getting a real, real good bargain at the draft table, I'm not so sure I want any of these guys because my concern is when you've got five or six candidates for a job, whoever wins the job is going to be on a very short leash. Uh, The first time he does anything, a little slump or a couple of errors in the field or something, the club can look at it and go, we got lots of options here. And uh, therefore, the playing time for the for the incumbent who comes out of spring training with the job isn't quite as solid as I would like when I'm making a decision to roster somebody. I, I might just pass on all these guys and let somebody else take that risk.
1: At the draft table, I believe I agree with you. Whoever gets anointed with the job in March, as you said, as you say, is likely to be on a short at leash. And none of these guys have such a pedigree that we really would expect them to just take their job and run with it. I think Barretto has the best chance of that, but certainly no guarantees. But the way to play this may very well be to ignore who gets anointed with the job in mid to late March, but be ready to scoop up the second man up at the end of April, beginning of May or whatever, they decide to make a change. If, for instance, Barreto gets put on the DL and Jorge Mateo comes up to take his at-bats on May 1st, I'm going to get interested in Jorge Mateo. But before then, you might be, you might be right that there's, uh, the best move here is to avoid all
0: you know i was looking at mateo last year he had a tremendous start in triple a and then everything fell off really quickly ray and and it started making me think that perhaps this guy's not quite ready for the big leagues and of course that could change now but i think he was under 250 for his last half of the minor in the minor leagues in the in an easy hitters league uh, he, he uh, also didn't run well. He's got great speed, but he's caught 11 times, 24 uh, successful steals. But 24 out of 35 is not that great of a ratio and is fairly close to being a rally killer, which means the A's, who are very data-focused, as we know, might say to this kid, you know, we know you can run, but until you get better at it, we can't afford to have you out there killing one rally after another at, with this low um, stolen base percentage. And of course, there's very little power there and, and if he doesn't draw, uh, more walks than he has get more base hits than he has um, it's nice to have a decent glove out there but at some point you need a little stick as well
1: yeah from a fantasy perspective if, if Mateo has a red light we're all going to lose interest qui- quickly i fully agree with you there
0: before we move on uh, there's a couple of other second base situations that jock wrote about i thought these were all really interesting uh rugnet has been the second baseman in texas and i i read uh, two kinds of things about Rugnet Odor uh, on the internet or when I'm listening to podcasts. And it's like half of the expert community really loves Rugnet Odor as a, a potential great bargain and bounce back here, all that kind of stuff. And the other half says you can't touch him with a 10-foot pole and you need to be looking at Nick Solak. Uh, I know uh, it's uh, just a quick, uh, how do you do, but what do you think of this race in Texas between Odor and Solak? Which way are you leaning? I think
1: Odor is going to have a lot of rope there. I, I think the interesting aspect of it, though, know, is you know Odor's sort of kept his head, shall we say, barely above the waterline with producing a little more power than you need to offset the uh, the terrible batting average that comes with his uh, his poor contact rates. But you got to remember that the entire hitting environment is changing in Texas this year, and if the new park. Is more pitcher friendly is as widely reported. Not necessarily as much for the dimensions, as much for the fact that it has a roof that they can close and turn on the air conditioning when it gets hot out there. That then, you know, how is that going to affect Odor's power? And is the is that delicate balance of how many strikeouts to how many home how many home runs he provides, you're going to swing the other way? And if that happens, then maybe that does just open up the door for Solak.
0: Three seasons out of the past 4 O'Dors had 30 home runs and double-digit bags. And in the even-numbered years, 2016 2018, he had 270 and 250, which is not bad. It's 204, 205 in the odd years. Do you put much credence in the whole even-year-odd-year year thing? And even if you don't, where do you see his batting average coming in in 2020, uh, given that we have a projection that's you know not hugely... Promising at two eighteen, but uh, you know there there are possibilities here. He's a killer in on base leagues, of course, because he just never draws a walk. But uh, that's been going up a little bit over the last couple of years as well. I think Ruggedo Doors a really interesting guy to think about.
1: He is, and there's you know there's some roster construction aspects to that too if you if you need the power and speed can build a batting average cushion and then just hope he hits you know on the higher end of that range you were talking about then you could come out with a with a very nice profit as i don't as for the even odd thing i don't put much into that for instance if i look at his expected, bat, expected batting average the last three years, it's trading in a very narrow range, 239, 238, 230, which is probably about where his batting average comes out, or a little lower than that if you average the three years, and you know, you're looking at a total of like 1,500 at-bats here. So I would argue that if we took away the artificial dividing lines of the ends of seasons, that we've got you know, three years of evidence that the door is a you know, 225, 230 hitter. And that's why our projection sits at you know, 218
0: right now. One last AL West second base race is in Los Angeles. Uh, the Angels have uh, Tommy LaStella, David Fletcher, and the rookie Luis Rengifo. Uh, how do you see that race?
1: One of the open questions that I'm really curious about is whether the first half of 2019 Tommy LaStella returns again. I think there's room on this team for both LaStella and Fletcher. They're both pretty flexible. Uh, they can both play third base, although obviously Anthony Rendon has that locked down. But Fletcher, at least, can go to the outfield. They can move guys around a little bit and get some uh, get some of these guys into the lineup a little a little bit together. But also, I think both of these guys would benefit from a job share, job share situation. So from a baseball perspective, I can understand why they're both here. From a fantasy perspective, I'm not sure I would expect either one of them to get more than 400, 450 at-bats. Uh, Ranjifa doesn't do much for me. Unless his red-white from last year changes. When he came up, there was some thought that he was going to be – a stolen base asset and obviously in season anytime someone gets a whiff of being a stolen base asset there are a lot of eyes on him but he didn't really deliver that last year and until he shows that he that he's gonna be a little more aggressive on the bases even if he's playing I'm not that interested but Fletcher and Lestella you know Fletcher brings on base and contact and you know batting average it won't kill you but Lestella you know he's the most interesting of these guys if that you know sort of out of nowhere first half of 2019 returns again after he now that he's healthy again.
0: And finally, Ray, before I let you go, uh, here at the uh, American League, League Watch News Reports, we tend to focus on the players, and I think that's as it should be, but I'm really curious to to get your take on the Astros cheating scandal and the whole business with buzzers and trash cans and all this kind of stuff and how much impact it had, not just on the game and not even particularly on the game because uh, greater minds than ours can argue about that, but you're the guy who manages the projection system at BaseballHQ.com, and I'm very curious how you allow for the change in that cheating you know at it for a while it was clearly helping them now they've been caught and presumably they're going to have to shut that whole deal down Uh, Brent Hershey wrote a really nice column at Baseball HQ about the entire issue but from the projections point of view Ray how have you adjusted to allow for the end of the trash cans and buzzers
1: you know the short answer is I haven't and that's not necessarily because I don't want to. I, I think I've actually opened up the my master spreadsheet and wanted to start making adjustments a couple of times. And when I look at it, I, I sort of just don't have an idea where to start. And that's what's stopping me at this point. I, you know, it's hard to. It's hard, if there was a if there was a structured quantitative way to tease out what the projection adjustment should be for these guys, I would have done it already. Uh, And I've talked to Todd Zola about this. We're actually doing a panel uh, in First Pitch Florida next week about tough projections, and obviously this topic comes up in that umbrella. Todd feels the same way. Todd's tweeted about it, that he's not been able to make any widespread adjustments to the Astros just yet, although I think he's actually starting to, Warm to making some minor adjustments. I haven't quite gotten there yet, although I'm not ruling it out. I really think that, as you mentioned, the piece that Brent wrote last week about the uh, the the Astros and the, how it's affect how it might affect them, and from the sort of the psychological aspect of it, I really think that's the better way to approach it. And to, he basically suggested you don't treat it as an adjustment to the projection as much as an adjustment to your risk tolerance and to the range of outcomes and to the, if you will, your confidence in the projection. And I think that's exactly the right way to handle it from a psychology point of view. And if you look at the the ADPs from various points in the offseason, uh, somebody on the uh, NFBC message boards did this legwork last week, that there isn't much change in the Astros except for Altuve and Breitman, who, of course, are the two guys who are going the earliest and also two guys who are intimately connected to the scandal. But I think that speaks more to it being a risk tolerance issue because they're both going with those early picks where your risk tolerance is really low and you want bankable money in the bank production. And if this scandal and the repercussions from it make that make those guys less money in the bank options, then that's where the devaluation is happening. But if you go further down the draft board, you're not seeing this, any of the guys who go later really see their ADPs move at all this Winter as the scandal has escalated. So I think that's a little bit of empirical evidence that that's what Brett said not only makes a lot of logical sense, but I think implicitly or explicitly it's also reflective of how people are reacting to it at the draft table already.
0: I did a little bit of research using uh, baseball savant's uh, um, tables for uh, Jose Altuve. And what I found, and it was pretty interesting to me because it's, I started from a hypothesis of maybe uh, knowing what pitch is coming isn't so helpful because you still got to put the bat on the ball, but knowing which pitches not to swing at, especially with two strikes, could be a real benefit because you're not going to strike out as much. And sure enough, if you look at a four-year span pre and post uh, the, the scandal or pre and during the scandal, I guess more accurately, Altuve showed a really remarkable improvement in not swinging at, at breaking pitches low and away with two strikes, and I, I wondered if maybe that's the the, the, uh, the benefit, because I know that a lot of the Houston players and the Houston apologists are saying, you know, even knowing what's coming, I mean, it's a help, but you still got to put the bat on the ball, and I thought maybe you don't. Maybe the whole point of it was, if you know a guy's going to throw that uh, sinker, or, or uh, especially a breaking pitch, a slider away and low, uh, and you see it coming in Kind of on the edge of the strike zone, and you know it's a breaking pitch. You can just lay off it and not strike out. And his strikeout rate and and all of those kind of metrics all lined up with that theory. And I, maybe I'll turn it into an article for Baseball HQ because it was pretty interesting. I thought, you know, maybe it's not what they were swinging at, but what they weren't.
1: I think that's a hundred percent right. And if you think back to the postseason last year, and you know, obviously we can get into all sorts of quibbling about which years they were cheating and how and you know w- without getting into the deep Um, the the, the deep layers of the conspiracy here. Uh, Entering the 2019 postseason, there was that ridiculous statistic that team-wide, the Astros led the majors in most walks and fewest strikeouts by hitters and fewest walks and most strikeouts by pitchers, just in the the league-wide team leaderboards. And no team had ever led MLB in all four of those categories in the same season. It was just a staggering statistic. And it really speaks to me of, where now, looking back on it some six months later, that that stat is A, tainted, and B, I sort, I think sort of speaks to the organizational philosophy in that they're not stealing signs to hit home runs, even though they hit a ton of home runs. They're stealing signs to control all the outcomes they can control before the ball gets in play. And I think that's exactly what you're getting at in your little study there. To me, I think it's where the edge can be had. And sure, there are all sorts of ramifications about stealing signs to get in hitter counts, so you can know, so you can hit the ball hard, harder and all those things. You know, it's a very virtuous circle. But that stat about the four categories that they led as a team is now just. To me, it's the smoking gun because there's probably a reason it never happened. And MLB will be before. Sure. These guys are all really good hitters and they're a really good team. And it's a shame that we'll never know how much of it is talent and how much of it is illicit edges, but that's where we are.
0: Ray, this has been fun. Uh, of course, we, you mentioned uh, first pitch, Florida is coming up uh, next weekend. Uh, t- Give us a brief reminder. We still got some seats available. What's going on in Florida?
1: Yeah, a couple of seats left. I actually got a registration uh, each of the last two days. We've had somebody drop in, so I, you know, we've got a couple of seats left. I, but and uh, if anybody wants to jump on it, still, uh, we'd, we'd love to have you. The first pitch Florida logo is on the right side of the baseball HQ homepage. We'll leave it up there uh, right until the conference starts. I think the full program is uh, there. You can take a look at all the experts who are coming. You can take a look at the weekend schedule. We've got two ball games we're going out to, and we've got a ton of great panels mixed in between. And uh, at night, we'll be doing drafts. So, you know, what, what's a better weekend than that in late February or early March? So uh, take a look and check it out. And uh, if you're interested, you can uh, buy your ticket right there, and we'll uh, send you all the information appropriately, immediately, and we'll be uh, happy to see everybody next week.
0: All right, Ray. Thanks a million. Talk to you next week. Thank you. PD- Ray Murphy is a Baseball HQ columnist and co-general manager and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, our Baseball HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer, and the three-minute warning, next on Baseball HQ Radio.
3: He's sitting on 7-14. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left-center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7:15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Henry Aaron is coming around third. His teammates are at home plate. And listen to this crowd. Baseball HQ Radio.
0: Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have the three-minute warning. And leading off, it's Alex Becky. He's back with our frequent flyer commentary, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer is Chicago White Sox infielder Nick Madrigal. And here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex. Becky,
3: Welcome back to Frequent Flyers for the toy-toy baseball season on Baseball HQ Radio. Before takeoff, let's take a moment to review the flight plan. Reviewing last April, April 2019, we told you about Minnesota's Luis Arise and Cleveland's Oscar Mercado, along with Chicago Cubs shortstop, Nico Horner, plus Detroit's Daz Cameron. Not a bad month. But did April showers bring May flowers? It sure did if you added Yordan Alvarez after our May 3rd show. Home runs in Houston were in full bloom for Yordan Alvarez, notwithstanding, well, completely avoiding here, with a capital H, any trash can banging references. By the way, did anyone else see the irony in that symbolism? A trash can? <laughs> Moving on, and again looking back. We also recommended on May 17, 2019, Miami's Zach Gallen before he blossomed on Arizona's mound after a trade deadline swap, helping him finish off the 2019 season with a 281 ERA in 15 starts. And let's not forget they posted a 251 ERA in his 12 post all star game starts, so go get him in the draft if he's still there. Of course, we also tried to direct your attention to pitchers such as Caleb Smith, Tayron Guerrero, Nate Pearson, Jose Urquidy, Alex Young, and his 3.56 ERA in 15 starts, plus the Dodgers' Tony Gonsolin and hard-throwing Emmanuel Classe, who was later traded for Corey Kluber in the offseason. But not everything came up roses. We're still waiting on the impact of players such as Nate Lowe, Alec Bohm, Ryan Mountcastle, and Bobby Bradley. Which brings us back to Daniel Mendick, our frequent flyer from June 28th, 2019, where we said, combined Daniel Mendick's 80% contact rate and 16% walk rate gives us an expectation benchmark of a two eighty three batting average, according to the tools available on BaseballHQ.com. Well, we were wrong. (laughs) Really wrong. (laughs) Daniel Mendick actually batted 308 in AAA in July and 309 in AAA in August before, you guessed it, batting 308 at the big league level in September. Compile that with Daniel Mendick's 17 home runs and 19 steals in AAA in 2019, and you have a pretty good power speed contact combination for a middle infielder. In other words, our frequent flyer from last June, Daniel Mendick, is worth watching in White Sox camp this spring. But so is soon-to-be 23-year-old on March 5th, White Sox second baseman, Nick Madrigal. Yes, it's true, we at BaseballHQ.com currently have Nick Madrigal ranked higher than Angels outfielder Joe Adele on our top fantasy impact list for 2020. Okay, so it's only one slot higher, with Madrigal at 3 and Adele at 4, but still, that's pretty good company. More importantly, we at BaseballHQ.com have Nick Madrigal pegged at an 80-grade contact tool, Double Plus, prompting the 2020 Minor League Baseball Analyst to tab Nick Madrigal as an athletic contact darling. Reason enough right there to draft him, an athletic contact darling. Sounds much better than Double Plus, eh, darling? Well, here's what even better. The 2020 baseball forecaster, page 110 for those of you keeping score at home, calls Nick Madrigal a potential rabbit who climbed three levels of the Chicago White Sox organization and swiped 35 bags in 2019. According to the 2020 baseball forecaster, page 110 again, Nick Madrigal's power may be non-existent, but there's late round value if he gets a playing time carrot in 2020. So would it be fair to say that Nick Madrigal is possibly a diamond in the rough? Well, then maybe it's also fair to say that you should draft Chicago White Sox second baseman Nick Madrigal, a potential diamond in the rough with at least one blank time carrot, as our first frequent flyer of the 2020 season. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com, hoping to see you at Baseball HQ's inaugural First Pitch Florida on February 28th through March 1st in Tampa. Cheers! Baseball
0: HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for the three-minute warning, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I want to talk about having conviction in our draft rankings. I got into a Twitter discussion the other day with a fellow fantasy owner after I commented on a statement he made about the importance of having the courage of our convictions when it comes to the rankings we use to draft our teams. What he said was, I'm sick of hearing people say I like picking from spot X, because then I just take whoever's left of the top X players. That tells me you have absolutely no conviction in your rankings. My reply was that it doesn't make sense to have convictions about our rankings, because we know that our rankings are usually wrong. Next week, I'll be talking with Ron Chandler, who has done research showing it's actually quite unusual for our pre-draft player rankings to line up with actual values at the end of the season. The original poster replied by saying, every pick you make is a decision to take that player over all the others available, so that implies a ranking whether you want to call it that or not. I don't think that's right, because the idea of a ranking implies an ordered list made up in advance. Following such a list can be a useful drafting method because it imposes a discipline that can be helpful for the sort of drafter who suffers from occasional spasms of shot-taking and guess-making and hunch-playing. But most players know that strictly following a list could be suboptimal because of the context of the draft to the point of a particular selection. For instance, I'm picking second in my TGFBI draft, so I ranked all the players using Baseball HQ values, then I assumed that the draft followed that chalk all the way down the line to see whom I would get at each of my picks. It's not a bad team. It starts with Trout, Bogarts, Flaherty, Suarez, and Simeon in the first five rounds. But I already see an issue. I'm five rounds into a draft, and I've already drafted two shortstops. And my list doesn't give me another starting pitcher till Max Freed in the 15th, then Dustin May in the 18th. By this time, I already have three closers, and so on. My roster is not shaping up well. So in a real draft, when I get to Semyon's anointed place in my rankings, I would probably reach down one spot to get... Justin Turner, whose value in the CDG is 26 cents below Semyon's. That's just 1.4% difference. I might reach down two spots to get Gary Sanchez, who's 31 cents below Semyon or 1.7%. To insist on drafting Semyon in that spot assumes the values are precise to the penny, and they're just not. We all want to go into our drafts with some idea of player value, but having convictions about those values seems misplaced. Instead, we need to draft using some combination of rough values and rankings, draft context, roster construction, and our own experience. My wife and I were talking about this, and she said if the values are only approximate, why can't you just clump the players into value groups and pick a player at random when your turn comes? At first, I thought that was a silly way to choose players. But is it really? If I believe the value rankings are inherently vague, as I do, I actually could take players at random this way, but only if I had the courage of my convictions. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt from BaseballHQ.com. I have my three-minute warning here on Baseball HQ Radio on Fridays every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 21st. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number six of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy, and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt your three-minute warning commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick David, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Stitcher, Pocket Cast, iTunes, wherever you catch your pods, And if they'll let you, leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and it helps new listeners find us. That keeps the podcast growing and going. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again Tuesday with a Tuesday Tout Expert interview featuring Ron Chandler. That's the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio, and so long.